0: Something that you did years ago that you think you feel that will build upon that and bring you to the next stage. And all, all I will say is, you know, I feel like I'm failing every day, but the fact that I don't give up, I don't take it as a failure. I just haven't achieved it yet.
1: Based in Washington, D.C., investor and entrepreneur Sarah Chen Spellings is the co founder of Beyond the Billion, launched as the Billion Dollar Fund for Women the world's first and largest global consortium of over a 100 venture funds and limited partner investors that have pledged to invest and are actively deploying beyond $1 billion towards women-founded companies.
2: Named as the young global leader of the World Economic Forum and Forbes Under-30 BC, Sarah is a recognized speaker, strategist and commentator on venture capital, startups and women in leadership, having been featured on Forbes, Fortune, Bloomberg, And she is the host of her own podcast, Billion Dollar Moves, as backed by the HubSpot Podcast Network.
1: Today, Sarah joins us as our featured and special International Women's Day guest to share about the highs and lows of her career trajectory as an entrepreneur, smashing the glass ceilings, and what failure has taught her. Enjoy!
2: Hi, this is Janice.
1: And I'm Sarah N.
2: And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional.
1: Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hey, Sarah. First and foremost, happy International Women's Day from Janice and I, as well as from Explore Yay. This Podcast. Whoop, whoop,
0: whoop. Whoop, Happy International Women's Day. I mean, it should be a happy International Women's Day every day. And I will say after doing this for a while, and Sarah, you and I go way back. But, you know, it should be a celebration every day. But I do appreciate that, you know, we are paying attention to it and some focus is necessary as well at this time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Always a good time to shine a light on fellow successful women. So thank you so much, Sarah, for spending your time here with us on the Explore This podcast. And we're very happy to be featuring you in our special International Women's Day episode highlighting and really celebrating the stories of women like yourself who have truly paved the way by breaking glass ceilings for women all around the world, but specifically, you know, home ground Malaysia, KL Baby, as well as Southeast Asia. And of course, now in the US where you are based through your work in Lean In Malaysia, as well as Beyond the Billions, which we will definitely dive into. And I want to say, Sarah, you know, I really cannot keep up with you with all your jet setting around the world. Recently, California, before that in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. You truly have been kept busy and on your toes and evidently 2023 was off to a spectacular start for you.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, I love traveling. It is it is a habit. It is a passion. But these days, especially with the demands of the business, you know, this might be a first note to everyone. But for those of us that are building and scaling businesses, right, it's It's so important to be laser focused. And this has come true very recently. So it's it's funny that you bring that up. But really making sure you follow through, saying no to good to say yes to great and a lot of that. And what you see on Instagram, on social media is a highlight reel, right? So don't forget. I mean, there are days we were just talking about this, you know, that we're just slogging through with everything that we're doing behind the scenes. and, And that's important as well.
1: Yeah. And time, obviously, is the one and only limited resource that we all have in common. So actually, to kick that off on a perfect note, we're actually very curious, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, Sarah. What does a day in the life of Sarah Chen look like?
0: Oh, Lord. What does it not look like? I will (laughs) say, I have seasons of work, right? I mean, it's me and my business, you know, the firm that we're building, and it is all all absorbing. It takes a lot of you because we're driving it and there's a lot of things to do. I actually realized in the last year, actually during the pandemic was when I really evaluated this. I needed time to stay focused, be grounded. So I choose days where I have my deep work days. So if it's a deep work day, you know, it's me literally hours on the computer, reviewing documents, reading, absorbing, consuming content, things that we do on a daily basis and Then, you know, the next day is a sales day where I'm pitching, I'm speaking to investors, I'm managing relationships. So I recognize not everybody has this flexibility to do that. But if you can, it's changed my life in a lot of ways because studies have shown that task switching between, you know, doing a sales call and doing another thing. I I think now today, actually, we're seeing how hybrid work is actually very taxing because we're still continuing the Zoom calls, things like this. But we're also expected to go for the meetings, and we don't give ourselves a breather, and and that actually has a big toll on productivity, and as well, you know, overall, just your mental health. It's a long way to answer your your question, but it'll be, you know, if if I'm traveling and I have Davos to go for, I mean, my schedule at Davos was meetings, meetings, meetings behind the scenes, podcast recordings, for that. yeah, podcast recordings, right? So uh, and and then attending and and being present. That's very important to me as well to. Really absorb. Sometimes you, you have an agenda, but it's important to also leave space. This is what a lot of my seniors have taught me leave space for serendipity because then you open yourself up to opportunities that you might not see beyond your owl focus, right? Of, of being single lane. And then if it's, if it's a work day, you know, it's calls, meetings and making sure I, I do what's necessary, producing some pitch deck that's necessary for the work we're doing, re- evaluating fund managers, evaluating deals, that sort of thing. So I don't know, a, a lot, just a
2: lot. Well, Clearly you, you have your, you know, hands and knees deep in work. So Sarah, we really love that you shared a very unfiltered view of your life behind the scenes, behind the highlight reel. So not everyone might know this, but you are actually born and raised in Kuala Lumpur, but now currently you're based in Washington, DC and you're the co-founder and managing partner of Beyond Billion. And we're really curious to know, in what way has your childhood shaped you to be who you are today?
0: Oh, in a large way, actually. And and I want a hat tip as well. I know Hannah, you has been on. I actually did grow up in Subang Jaya. So Sarah, we were close by in USJ. Oh, yeah. Woo-hoo. Uh, woohoo. And then moved on to Damansara and all that, right? So I'll say a couple of things. Crucible moments. One is I started as a TV host, a national TV host on TV2, RTM, Golden Kids Club, back in the day, Golden Kids News. You know, some of you listening in might remember this, where we would be reporting on, you know, book fairs, events. So it was called, there were four segments on Sunday, Sanasini, Sahari Bersama. So Sahari Bersama was interviewing different people and I interviewed archaeologists. I interviewed actually the general manager of Dutch Lady at that time who happened to be a strong female leader as well, didn't realize it would, you know, leave an impression on me. But it was from a very young age. And I started this, I was nine years old. I frankly don't think I was very good then. I've improved since, but it takes time. But what it it taught me was, number one, you know, you need to show up. You need to be confident. Do what's asked of you in some way. It set me up well, I believe. And I'm really grateful to the philanthropist who I call now my, my godfather and godmother who started this TV program and really wanted it to be a leadership journey for many of us, right? So there was 12 of us, TV hosts. And on top of that, we were expected to maintain good grades. We were also expected to do work for the community. So we volunteered, actually on the weekends as well, work with the former prime minister's wives initiatives as well with children and UNICEF. And, you know, at the age of 16, I was sent because of this group to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil to speak about the rights of media and the rights of children in media. So a lot of that has informed, I guess, my personality, ability to rise to the occasion and and realizing how important that is, my drive, my competitive spirit. So that's one element of it. The other element as well is it was a very unique upbringing, right? And I didn't realize it going until I realized that not everyone else had this experience. But I was in this bubble of being told, be confident, be who you are, you know, the more the better, in fact, because you need a shine for the camera, they need to see personality. And that's important charisma to capture the audience. But later on in, in my life in about high school, I think we all know SBM, right? I had like 13 subjects that I took. And of course, you know, try tried to get the top grade, straight A students all my life. I was a valedictorian, so and so forth. And I was also in a little bit of a bubble because I, I went to Sri Chambaka on a scholarship. And we were starting out Sri Chambaka churas at that time. And our, our class was, what, 20 people? which is very bizarre because some people go through like bullying and all these things in school. But I had genuinely such a great experience with some of my best friends, you know, because it was just 20 of us starting out in this new school. We gave a lot of uh, trouble to some of our teachers, (laughs) but it was just so much fun. And I look upon that time in that, you know, I was encouraged in some way to just be who I am. And then this is where it's leading to. There was a tipping point of where I'm sure, you know, the fellow Malaysian audience would, would understand, you know, going abroad, it's really expensive. And what you want to try to do is really get a scholarship. Right. And, and so I even won the like global world law award. So whatever, you know, box you wanted me to tick, I ticked it. And then I got rejected by so many scholarship interviewers because I didn't meet whatever they believe to be, you know, the pattern of success that they wanted for their candidates. And that really um, made me pause. A person of authority that interviewed me for one of my interviews pulled me aside at the end of the interview and actually said, hey, Sarah, if you don't mind, I want to give you some feedback. And I was like, yeah, what is it? You know, bright eyed Malaysian girl looking forward to the future. And he said to me, hey, you know, the way you answered some of those questions, it came off a little bit too strong, especially for a girl. You know, it's a bit too ambitious. The questions were, what do you want to be? And I guess I said CEO, you know, I want to work towards this point of leadership. And uh, that really shocked me, frankly. You, you know, you think of the arc of my journey in which I was encouraged and I could not ask for a better childhood and then being told this, right, by someone that I saw to be a gateway to my future. because. I needed to go to London. I needed to go to the UK. Otherwise, my life is over at that time as a young girl. Frankly, you know, I, I help back my tears. I, I tell the story of my father driving me around for all these interviews, helped me to fill up all the paperwork. And he had his hands on the steering wheel and looked at me as I, I hopped in the car and, you know, eagerly asking his daughter, so how did it go, girl? And I literally just Exploded into tears because at that very moment, and I think all of you might resonate with this, you, you're questioning yourself and you think at yourself at 16, 17, what do you know, right? Having a bubble burst in some way and realizing that, you know, there are inequalities in the world. That was a big shock for me. Later on in my life, it, it showed up in many different ways, but it's given me A lot of purpose in driving me to do what I do today because I wrote in my diary, I I still keep a, a version of a journal, but I said I never want my daughter to feel this way.
1: That's just so beautiful, Sarah. And obviously, it took you back many, many years, but it was so powerful to hear about how that moment in time was really that turning point that has led you to doing all the work that you do right now. Your life journey has been this vibrant canvas that's painted with so many different colored and diverse Strokes and you were a law graduate from King's College, London. And, you know, like many of us, Janice and I, we studied law as well, wanted to stay back in London. And, you know, it was really important for us at that point of time to also get international work experience. But for you, upon graduation, you returned to Malaysia to take on your father's business at, I believe, the young age of 21 when your dad became ill. How did you confront the realities of leading a business at a very young age while navigating challenging circumstances at home.
0: So, you know, when I came into it, frankly, I didn't think of myself as leading the business. I was just helping my dad out, right? And Because he wasn't well. And I think we all know there's the expectation of being a dutiful Asian daughter. The moment your dad calls, you know, that's it, right? You, you come back and you figure it out. I came in naive, not knowing what to expect, maybe being a little bit less prepare. And and, you know, you can't prepare for this moment, but I was not prepared at all. I think there was a huge responsibility that I didn't see. You know, my dad was, this is such an Asian thing. They're not very open. They don't want to talk about bad things. So I didn't really actually recognize how bad it was that he was truly dying. So he came in on the pretend like, you know, come and help me. And I was like, sure, you know, I'll help you. And of course, I want to spend time with you. And it was a small business. They've done well, but it was really hard. I had consultants there that were 40, 50s that were twice my age and I was fresh off of a university in King. So that summer I came back and then I started helping my dad. At that time, I didn't really recognize that I was expected to necessarily take over in some way. I just stepped in to help be his voice. But you imagine, you know, you're at that age and pretending in some way to have everything under control because of the element of stability you want to give your staff, right? And I take that responsibility very seriously. And this is why, frankly, I love business because you have an opportunity and the privilege to assist with building people's rice bowls. So yeah, it, it was tough. I had my first resignation in my life ever at that time. Uh, and I took it super personally. I thought, you know, I had failed in my life. I was a terrible leader. But as you're asking me this question, I have like, highlight reels of moments of me at the time we were we were working with CIMB, we were working some of the big banks, some fortune listed companies. And it was little me trying to get the meeting together, convincing I there was even, you know, because we were also doing CEO placements, senior leadership placements, I had to speak to somebody's, you know, like wife about this change because this is a life change. And you know, you you think about that. It it definitely left a mark on me. But um yeah, it taught me a lot about business to to eat the humble pie, to start, just get started because that's the best way that you learned. And it has driven me to continue to do the work that I do today because I, I've experienced it, right? I know what scale looks like. I know how hard it is to close that sale and then make sure that, you know, the clients pay up and what that means within a smaller construct, even as you build your team, the morale, all of that. I mean, I experienced all of that in a very intense short period of time.
2: That is truly, you know, a lot to handle for someone who is recently graduated and you graduated in a legal degree as well. So which means that you had to pick up very, very steep learning curve of learning about business, Mm -hmm. accounting, HR, your, your everything rolled into one. And it wasn't too long after that where you basically began your journey into advancing women and leadership via Lean In. What was that whole experience like? And what was the biggest lesson you learned as you embarked on building Lean In together with your co-founder?
0: You know, I I always thank Abir, right, for getting me on this journey and, and the other women in Lean In Malaysia. So Abir is my co-founder, Abir Abdul Rahim for Lean In Malaysia. And it all started, as the story goes, that both of us were in corporate Malaysia. By that time, I had left my father's company and then I, to gain some corporate experience, started working with Sim Darby and was lucky enough to have been one of the first few hires of what was going to become a corporate venture capital unit, right? With something like 100, 150 million allocation. And along the way, whilst I love my career, it was very intellectually stimulating. I always joke that my boss gave me too long of a leash because, again, I was 25. I was working on this 30 million deal. I was negotiating. And a lot of my life has been this, you know, where people suddenly, I don't know, they can't make the meeting. And they're like, Sarah, just go take that meeting. You can do it. Twice in my life, it has been very significant. And it's just these people who just believed in me, gave me a long leash. But, with that, I learned a lot. But along the way, I realized there were very few women in positions of leadership, and there was also this phenomenon where there were women who were scientists, so we were investing into late stage biotech companies, so we were looking at strategic investments the the byproduct of what the company was producing. Could we you know invest into technology that would could create another product from that and therefore lift the the whole supply chain up? And there were women who were scientists, who were doing the due diligence from a technical perspective, R&D and all that. Some of the smartest women that I know, even till today. And yet, they would always say, Sarah, you know, you communicate well, why don't you present our findings for us? One. Second was at 5 p.m., 6 p.m., depending on the day, they would check out no matter what and go back because guess what? They're expected to prepare a meal for the kids, pick up it and take the lion's share of the domestic responsibilities, whatever that was. And of course, I was working with married men as well, by the way. At that time, I was a single 20-something-year-old. And the men were still there till 8 o'clock, whatever time was required. And, and you think about this from a larger perspective. It, we were all working towards this, the single. We were investing into the U.S., which meant that we had to take, you know, I had 2 a.m. calls, whatever was required to close the deal because of the time difference. And these women were excluded. From the conversation just because it, and it was a choice, right? Of course, we all have choices. Do you stay, do you go? But of course, they're gonna pick their children. But in the end, I realized over the years they were not getting the keys to the corner office because they were not advocating for themselves, because also, you know, they weren't excluded in, in some of these meetings where you were not visible. I took that too hard. And then I started looking around me. And I I had a coffee with Abir. I was like, hey. How many women do you have in leadership? Are they leading business units? You know, we have in, in legal, we have in the supporting, which are very important, but I was already hooked to business. So I was looking for a role model in business and there was none. And so we started on this journey where Abir said, Well, you know, I I read this book, Lean In, and I want to do this thing. And she had organized at one time, she invited me the first, I think, gathering at a cafe just to talk about this. And I was like, okay. I'm in. And let's go big or go home. And that's always been my life principle. And I think you know the rest of the story. But the next event, there was like a hundred. The next event, there was like a thousand people. There was Kairi Looting, right, that supported us, that that showed up. The Ministry of Women as well. A lot of them came together from the world of politics, corporate, NGOs as well to support this initiative because I realized the timing was also right. There was There was not much going on at that point in time. And we represented in a very large way the voice of so many women who were ambitious, but just didn't know how to get there. And yeah, that was part of the story.
1: I don't even know where to start, Sarah, <laughs> because I remember being a small part of Lenin when it first started so many years ago now. And, you know, it has obviously expanded and blossomed and taken its life of its own with other incredible women leading the pact. But we also wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about 2018, which was a pretty pivotal year in your life where there were quite significant changes for you, where you made your very monumental move to the US. And you also got married to your now husband and reside in Washington. It was in October 2018 when you and your co-founder, Shelly Porges, launched the billion-dollar fund for women with this incredibly huge and audacious goal of catalyzing $1 billion into the hands of female founders globally. And this is primarily with the aim of addressing the gender venture investment gap because you recognized and saw this problem where women were receiving only 2.2% of all venture capital funding. Tell us very briefly, what is the biggest impact of Beyond the Billion to date? What are those highlights?
0: I'll give you a quick and dirty on the billion dollar fund for women that then evolved to beyond the billion, right? So women still today, unfortunately, get less than 3% of all venture capital. So what's funding our future, you know, the technologies that we experience, many of that is not being funded in the way that it should be because our belief is talent is universal, but opportunity is not, right? And there are real structural issues as as I worked on this for the last couple of years that result into this. It is not a pipeline issue. You know, it's easy to say, hmm. Maybe the women don't want it. Maybe there are not enough women. Women are graduating at much higher rates in STEM fields, in many other fields, business fields than ever before. And this is just not translating, right? So a little bit of that leaky pipeline, but now, you know, translating that into the the venture sphere. We're seeing versions of that as well, and there are so many elements that that we don't have the time to go into from unconscious bias to real structural issues on privilege and things like that that result into this. But when Shelley and I came together, one of the things that we connected on was she was the president of the North American Jewelry for Cartier Women's Initiative for the longest time, where Cartier, the jewelry brand, actually spends millions of dollars every year to support women entrepreneurs from grants and things like that. And she was seeing in the last decade how all these great ideas, whether they have a healthcare or an agriculture, climate-focused, climate-forward solution that had IP, that had traction, that had everything, not get funded. They would get the grants, but they would not get the venture capital funding that you need to scale. And that irked her and I, as you know, coming from a venture capital lens, not also seeing the women in leadership, even from a deal flow perspective. And, you know, women leadership, venture capital have emerged to be two things that are important to me in my life that I'm passionate about that I believe I've been called to do. And that has really started our partnership to address the egregious venture funding gap where that less than 3% in 2017 was about $1.9 And we thought, hmm, what if we aim for half of that, right? A billion dollars. That would be a good goal. And we actually, I kid you not, it was a 10-year plan back in the day when 10-year plans were something. We thought, okay, this one, you'll take us maybe 10 years. We'll see how it goes in the first two years and take it from there. And because I had come from a VC background and Shelly had her entrepreneurial investor background as well, we had friends in, in good places that were already making these decisions. And the idea was, could we mobilize a community and network of venture capitalists to create this statement, right? Because what really gave us this opportunity and triggered us to, to do this was we had an opportunity to present at the World Bank meetings in Bali in 2018. But what would be better would be, you know, why don't we aim for a billion? And this, I, I give kudos to my co-founder Shelly, who really has a finance marketing background as well, and said, let's keep it to the billion, right? And then we'll figure it out. And I was new in, in the United States. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll come and help you, frankly. I raised my hand. I said I still had some time while I was getting my paperwork processed. I think I know a little bit about this. Let me make some calls and see what we can land. And by the time we arrived at the World Bank meetings, we had $460 million committed by a group of VCs. And then within nine months, we hit the billion dollar goal, which actually pushed us to go beyond the billion because we were asked by the CEO of Political on stage, all right, you know, what next? 10 billion, 2 billion, what 2 billion fund? What, What would you call it? And so we decided, let's not cap it. Let's go beyond the billion. And frankly, it also allowed us to widen the aperture a little bit to think about mainstreaming gender in that, you know, going beyond the billion requires all of our talents unleashed. And we can't do that without half of our population. In our consortium, while the main ask was to ask the venture capital funds to commit a dollar amount to be invested into women founded companies. So we didn't seek out, oh, you have to be a woman fund manager and all that. All we asked was you you committed to this. And in fact, my belief, as you know, with my work in Lean In has always been, we have to work with the system to change the system. And that women's economic empowerment is not a woman's issue, right? First of all, we did not create this problem. Second of all, we need to ensure that this is the agenda in any Business agenda, because it is your consumer base, it is your future market, it is the the leaders behind it, right? Again, fifty now 51% of the population. We didn't seek out the fund managers to be a specific gender or anything like that, but 80% of our fund managers are women or people of color or both. And that tells you something, right? It tells you something about them wanting to do more for their own communities and their own networks. And this is why I'm so bullish on emerging managers and the next generation of managers who don't look like the cookie cutter. You know, I have 10 years of Goldman Sachs experience, that track record, but they've built themselves from their communities to be able to really find all these outlier deals, right, that are going to solve some of our toughest issues. That's the quick and dirty. We are now beyond the billion. So we've hit the billion dollar goal. And just so you know, as well, talking about impact from the first billion that was pledged, 638 million of that has already been deployed in under two years, which is a lot into close to 800 female founded companies all through venture capital. And in fact, we have 11 unicorns. From Canva, Melanie Perkins, to Everly Well, to Maven Clinic and healthcare. So, you know, women are innovating across the board from ag tech, clean tech, whatever, you name it, and are just doing great work. Because I see it, I work with fund managers and the founders every day. Man, if you invest in women, you're in good company. It's just good business. And if you're not, you're missing out on this huge arbitrage opportunity. I
2: think there couldn't be a more persuasive case that you're making, Sarah. And honestly, its I had goosebumps just hearing you speak about the audacious goal that you have dreamed of and actually realized and going beyond the billion to so much more beyond what you've even dreamed of in the beginning. So really, really inspiring to see what you've achieved so far. And I think sky's the limit for you and, and for the fund as well. We're going to take a turn now and dive deep into... The life behind the rainbows and sometimes the highlight reels, we recognize in the life of an entrepreneur, sometimes there might be triumphs, but there will also be tribulations as as well. And for you, you know, as an experienced investor and entrepreneur, we know that you've undoubtedly also encountered your fair share of failures. So could you share with our audience a story of a particular failure that stands out and what were some of the insights and lessons that you derived from that?
0: Hmm. Where do I begin? You know, I these days I feel like I don't focus on it too much. And actually, this is a, a question that I will struggle to answer. And I was thinking about this when you when you prompted me because I feel every day, you know, and it's part of the process. If you're not failing, you're not trying. What is failure? Failure means you don't succeed in something. And these days, I really believe because I see it in compounding interest. And what this means is that, you know, you think about even podcasts, right? Podcasting, bringing this to to all context here. It's so hard. There's so much work behind the scenes. So audience, if you're listening, thank you, because your support means a lot to all of us podcasters. But you do one thing and then you 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 put it out into the wall. And it's like sometimes, man, is it to an abyss? Is anyone listening? But if you keep consistent, you keep doing it. There's so much that comes from it, right? And something that you did years ago that you think you feel that will build upon that and bring you to the next stage. And all I will say is, you know, I feel like I'm failing every day, but the fact that I don't give up, I don't take it as a failure. I just haven't achieved it yet. right? And and frankly, one of the things that I learned is, man, a lot of the things, you know, being bold, being very ambitious with your work is good. But at the same time, I always overestimate myself, underestimate how much work it takes to get to a certain all oh, how long it takes right it always takes longer even fundraising it takes longer and it's always harder than you expect but you overestimate yourself in one year but you underestimate what you can achieve in 10 years so give yourself time give yourself a you know some grace along the way and and keep going one step in front of the other i mean the biggest failure that I don't even know if it's it could be considered that now these days I've evolved my thinking was, you know, running my dad's business. I think I failed. I was a sucky boss. I, I had no idea. I didn't provide a platform for the employees, the staff to necessarily feel like this could be a stable next generation handover and build it up from there. And I felt like there was an opportunity. Maybe I didn't hop on it. And now maybe it's too late. So that's a failure because now I'm I'm like investing business. Couldn't I have done it? That, that sort of thing. That's one element. The second was even in the conglomerate, I love the work that we did, but there was so much of stakeholder management and there were political wins involved and all that. But, you know, we had a really good platform, but we just maybe didn't have enough political wind to get it to the next stage. But I will say, you know, talking about That not-so-failure, I just had dinner in Palm Springs in California with one of my investee companies, the CEO. And remember, back then, I was, what, 20? He was joking with me, you know, like, I had no idea you were this, like, 20-something I had to deal with. But I was, what, 26, 25, 26, right, when I got started dealing with a serious seasoned CEO. And the reason why I could still have dinner with him and now he's, like, opening doors for me, even in this stage of my life, is because... I did my work. I was transparent in that, Hey, in corporate, even if you're the CEO, frankly, you're, you're still part of a wider behemoth, right? Of, of like, there's many elements, many stakeholders to manage that you, it's not you alone that is driving that decision. So yeah, I was, I guess, a good person <laughs> and he was impressed and continues to be impressed and wants to support me. And so many of those people that I interacted with in that chapter have gone on to be my supporters today. So do I take that as a failure? Yeah, I think we failed in really establishing a corporate VC unit that could have done so much more. But is that my failure alone? I don't think so. In my capacity, I did what I what I had to, what I believe to be the best for the company. And then, you know, things happen. But whatever you do, there's always going to be good, bad and ugly. And you just have to embrace that.
1: And you're not know, just embracing this. It's okay to fail mindset. It's something that brought me back to a podcast that I was listening where Sarah Blakey, the founder of Spanx, she shared that every week at the dinner table, her dad would ask her, what is something that you failed at this week? And if they didn't have mm-hmm. something, he would be disappointed. To your point, Sarah, from a very early stage, it helps us to rethink what is considered a failure. And also that failure is not necessarily the outcome because failure is not trying. So. Sarah, as someone who has found your really sweet and niche spot in the world of private equity, venture capital, media, as well as in the business of empowering women, you are the true embodiment of someone who's not just living out her dream. You own your story. You're also someone who has this girl on fire energy. So as someone who's always in the limelight, how do you balance this public persona while maintaining Mm -hmm. authenticity and vulnerability in your leadership?
0: That's a great question. So this, and this is an important one, actually. So when I was working with a conglomerate, and this is very Asian culture in some way, in which I felt a business is business. You know, I can't make, they can't be my friends, right? I I wanted to maintain that boundary for some reason. I think I was young and and I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to make sure I was viewed as a serious professional. You got to view me seriously. I can't like, you know, go for drinks and do all these things but i had this it, it, actually in that chapter i had uh different people that have come up in my life that i invested in and and actually said hey you know i want to learn more about you i want to like you know beyond the office and they pushed me in some way and i was like well okay fine i'll i'll, I'll go out for drinks and we'll go have fun but tomorrow you know got to show up at 8 a.m. got to do the work because i'm a serious professional and i'm building my track record here and and i realized so after a while I gave in, right? So so we're now really good friends. I, I talk about the CEO that I had dinner with. I have many I have many others that I continue to have dinners with, even the CFO from the first company we invested in and all that. And I I truly feel that if I didn't give in, I would have missed out on so much of life. Like, hey, this person, beyond the deal that I'm doing, has like this dog that is super amazing. And like, you know, I could go up to their houses and like they'll welcome me as a friend. And we can still continue to do things together, both personally and professionally. And and that is just to answer your question a very long way in that I don't think I necessarily am different people. And in fact, I don't want to be, you know, who you see. Sure, you know, it wouldn't always be shiny, but it is, you know, whatever I put out, there, it is my, my voice. I tried in the past, frankly, hiring like an agency to help me and then I realized it's not my voice. I can't do this. And even though it takes time, it matters to me that I am authentic to who I am. So, you know, I I I think it's one and the same in many ways. Of course, there are ways that you have to manage it. For example, my husband gives me feedback that I'm always on all the time. I I just need to shut off and watch TV, mindless TV. Although he gives me then a documentary. But the point is that, you know, I'm I'm so hardwired, but I'm like this all the time. And it's you know, he knows who I am and I am who I am with him, but he loves me for it. Right. And, and so it's a very hard question. I, I, I think I, I try to be as authentic as possible, even with the people that I work with, right. In my team, they know what's going on. Right. There, of course, you know, as a leader, there's some things you have to work through before you elevate it to the team. But that's just part of the process. It doesn't mean that I'm not leading authentically. It means that there are certain things that I need to manage before I alert everybody, get it on a panic mode and things like that, right? So yeah, hard question. I I don't know how to answer that because I I think it's it should be one and the same as much as possible is my way of leadership. I, I see a lot of really great friendships being built at the workplace. And that's not wrong, you know? And I used to think that was wrong.
2: Love that you're unapologetically you even if it means having to figure out what your, your favorite way of relaxing or decompressing is. So thank you, Sarah, for sharing with us so truthfully, so raw, so vulnerably about all the insights that you've learned throughout your, your whole career trajectory so far. We're going to wrap up now with a fun rapid fire segment. We hope you're ready for this. Yes, I love rapid fire. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. Okay, question number one. What is one lesser known fun fact about you that nobody knows about? The
0: secret to my body is I have ice cream every day. I'm an ice cream addict. And this is important, you know, ladies. I will say we would do all this diet, it doesn't work. And this is just my approach to life, right? You know, whatever you want, just have a bit of it. Just have it. Because if you keep yourself like, oh, you know, only on Fridays, like life is short. I'm gonna have <laughs> my ice cream, okay? It's it's it. your and part, your play part. Question number two. If
2: you are not an entrepreneur in an alternate universe. What would you be? Beyonce.
0: Oh, Sasha Fierce. She is an entrepreneur, but I want to be Beyonce. Yeah, I, want, I wonder what her life is like. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We can all dream. What is your dream podcast guest? Oh, dream podcast guest. Beyonce? Maybe Oprah. No, actually Oprah Winfrey. I want to interview the interviewer yeah
2: next question what is your favorite way of chilling or decompressing
0: Ah, such a spoiled answer but the spa like i could just do a spa the whole day like massage me feed me love me like yeah that's it like i could just yeah facial whatever you know massage just doing deep tissue I, i just love all that yeah pool water bath salt
2: And last question, along the veins of International Women's Day, which is embrace equity,
0: we want to know what does equity mean to you? In the simplest way, I think equity is where everybody truly has a fair shot. And what that means is that there's no element of privilege, which will give you a leg up, you know, structural bias, things like that. And why we have inequity is from deeply ingrained stereotypes, right? You think about why women are abrasive aggressive and not assertive and not visionary you know that those simple terminologies it all comes from a place of we expect it to be different and this comes from years ago which needs to be dismantled in many ways right so yeah i, I truly want a world where everybody has a fair shot you know and has that opportunity and and whether you want it or not that's a different question altogether right and this is important actually whether you truly have that choice, that informed choice, because many women think they don't want it, but why, right? And this gets a little bit controversial, but I did have private conversations with many of my friends, which inspired my work and lean in, actually. But they say things like, you know, I, I don't want to lead necessarily. Like, you want that. You're a different kind of woman. And I question that because I question, you know, what have they been told and socialized over time? Because we are the sum of our experiences, right? Being expected to get married. I mean, right? being told you're a leftover woman. All these are messages which we take and internalize. And so I, I think it's important to like unpack all of that and truly ask the question. If you want it, do you have a fair shot? Do you have the opportunity to... Be the best version of yourself and to hopefully, you know, do a lot of good in, in a lot of that. And I don't think we're we're really at that stage at this point in time.
2: And on that note, what is your message to all our listeners out there, both males and females on this International Women's Day? My message is always
0: going to be dream bank, dream bank, execute with precision, do what you said you're going to do.
1: Very short and succinct, Sarah. So thank <laughs> yes. you so much for that. And one final question that we'd like to ask all our guests at the end of our Explore This episode is, what is the one thing that you recently explored that surprised you?
0: I'll put this one and, and give a head tip to my husband. Stand-up comedy. My husband loves comedy. And initially, I'm like, you know, I'm a prude Asian girl, right? I'm like, <laughs> like, uh, why are they swearing so much? Why is it every time like these sort of jokes? You know what I mean? But when I unpack that, and and that's part of how he forces me to decompress to watch. And we're going to see one of his favorite comedians very soon, right? Tom Segura. I love stand-up comedy more than I expected because it's so relevant. You have to show up. You have to tell a narrative in a short period of time. You have to have charisma. But it's so hard to do, actually. It's so hard to do. But it's such an art. And I think it genuinely makes us all better human beings in which we can laugh at ourselves. I mean, one of the issues that we have in Malaysia is, you know, we don't exactly have true freedom of speech, right? I mean, in comedy, I mean, in America, Lord, they are saying terrible things, right? About (laughs) the president, about all these things that you would never have today in Malaysia yet. But I think it's so important because it enables the people to voice out their views without filter and Become more informed than in that. Okay. Is that comedy? But there's a Leo truth in that. How do I think about that? And that's uh, that exploration has uh, surprised me and, and I continue to enjoy it. And I, I don't think I'm a funny person. I try to be, but yeah, it is, it's so much fun. It's so much fun just to like see it and experience it. And that's what I explored.
1: Awesome. That was unexpected. Sarah, maybe something you might consider <laughs> trying as well would definitely push you and us out of our comfort zones, I would say. Finally, where can our listeners find you, Sarah?
0: Oh, thank you. So I want to plug my podcast, Billion Dollar Moves. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, all about deconstructing the billion dollar moves of some of the top funders, founders, and execs in the US and Asia venture ecosystem. You can also follow me on Instagram and wherever else. All the handles and all the channels are Sarah Chen Global. But thank you so much. And I look forward to staying in touch and, and hearing from all of you.
1: Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. This has been an incredible chat with you. And once again, happy International Women's Day. Thank you. And to you both. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Leave us a rating and review and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd
2: love to hear from you, So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle explorethispodcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!